We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Micah. So I'll give you the opportunity to uh, find Micah there in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read the first five verses of Micah chapter 5 for us as our sermon text reading right now. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Apathrotha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she is to be in labor and has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and, and treads in our palaces, then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. That's God's word. Let me pray and then we'll look at this text together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for it is supreme above all things on this earth. And it will last into eternity and we will, we will bear witness by learning its depths for all of eternity. We thank you for the book of Micah, which was written so long ago and yet speaks so so clearly today, I ask that I would be clear, and I ask that I would be truthful, and I pray that you would give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we might be changed by exposure to your word. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. I want to thank Andy Rice for preaching for me last week. I was uh, in Chicago for a wedding, and uh, I, I left Friday afternoon, got back Sunday afternoon. I just couldn't get it done any quicker. Um, but Andy was kind enough to preach for us, and I've already listened to part of his sermon, and he did a great job. And so it's always nice to have him and one of the other elders fill in for me and with the confidence of knowing that they will handle God's word well. But we're back in Micah uh, today. We'll look at kind of the conclusion, concluding part of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5, and we'll get this done in the next 30 minutes or so. There are several key themes that we've looked at in this study of Micah so far, and I want to rehearse those for us again this morning. The, the first of which is uh, probably well known to people who attend church. God hates sin and will punish sin. Now that, that may seem like an ordinary kind of statement. Uh, everybody that is a churchgoer would tell you that God hates sin. Not everybody would tell you God punishes sin. God must punish sin. And sin never goes unpunished. The second theme that we've looked at in the book of Micah is that Judgment precedes salvation. Uh, the book of Micah breaks into three different sections, and Micah talks about judgment first, 
And then he talks about how God is going to redeem his remnant people uh, later on. But, but judgment always precedes salvation, and, and judgment must come before salvation. Uh, the third theme that we've explored and I want to remind us of is that what Micah is preaching is radically different than all the other religious leadership in the southern kingdom of Israel at the time. The, the preachers and the priests and the prophets that were around during Micah's day were telling the people, you are okay. God is happy with you and you have done nothing wrong that is grievous enough to deserve judgment. We want Micah to be quiet, but Micah's sermons were filled with the reality of God's judgment, even though God would ultimately save. So his message was very, very different from the rest of the world at his time. He preaches judgment and then salvation, and everybody else is saying, you haven't done anything worthy of judgment. And with that last theme in mind, the question that comes out of Micah is, which preacher do you want to listen to? Because Micah is saying, I'm introducing you to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and the God of Israel is a God who hates sin, judges sin, and then produces salvation. The God that your preachers and prophets and priests, what they're preaching about is that you haven't done anything worthy of being judged. And so just carry on with life. God wants you to enjoy what he's created and, and have a good time. And so what kind of preacher do you want to listen to? And I'll be really frank with you. Um, if, if I had a choice in the matter... These people who preach peace all the time, peace with God, peace with each other, peace with everything, sound really good. And the message that I have done nothing worthy of the judgment of God sounds pretty appealing, to be quite frank. And so when a preacher comes along and talks about a God who hates sin and has to judge sin... Well, that's a pretty cranky God that guy's talking about. I want to hear about the God of love and, and peace and acceptance and, and, and embraces everybody. I mean, if I had my choice, wouldn't that be where you'd want to go? Who doesn't want to be told you're okay? Who doesn't want to be told enjoy everything that God has given you? Who doesn't want to be told that judgment isn't coming? I mean, that's pretty relevant, I think. I mean, Micah was written 2,750 years ago, but the tension is still the same in 2023. What kind of God do you want to be introduced to if there is a God? Certainly not a God that hates sin and is going to judge sin. I want to hear about the God that's going to accept me just the way I am and, and somehow is going to forget about any indiscretion. But the problem 
was, is, and will always be is that sin is the obstacle that separates man from his relationship with God. So man cannot have a relationship with God because of this thing called sin. And if sin is not dealt with, there cannot be a relationship with God. So really, when the Bible preaches God's judgment on sin and that sin has to be dealt with, that's terribly good news. Because he is saying that there is an opportunity for a relationship to exist with God if sin is judged. If, if the problem of sin is judged and dealt with, then man can have a relationship with him. But, but again, who wants to talk about judgment? I mean, that's hard. And, and the Bible is eminently clear that judgment for sin falls one of two places, and only one of two places. It falls on the provision God made in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who put their faith and trust and confidence in him know that he has satisfied the judgment of God. And those who reject that the judgment of God still rests on them. So justice will be satisfied, but it will only be satisfied in one of two places. Either in Christ, whom Micah is pointing forward to, or Christ that we look back upon and eagerly await his return. And so Micah is talking to people and he's saying, you need to put your faith and trust in the provision God is promising. That you need to be faithful and take him at his word and that you need to believe that he will make provision for those who put their faith and trust in his word. And he's called us to do the same thing. But there's one more modern problem before we get to the, to the text and it comes in many forms, and it comes, unfortunately, in the church. People will say, once you have a relationship with God through Christ, and Christ has taken upon himself the judgment for sin, you're free and clear. Sin's no longer an issue. You know, don't worry about it. Live your life however you want to live. God wants you to enjoy all that he's created and, and, and have the peace. And, and everything gets focused on a, on a temporal level. You know what I'm trying to say? Well, Christ has taken the judgment for sin, but and, and when he took the judgment for sin, the decisive battle in the whole war was fought and won. But the battles are still raging. We live in a sinful world. And sin has consequences yet. Maybe not eternal consequences because Christ has taken upon himself the judgment for sin. But we are to live righteously before our Savior and Lord until he draws us to himself in glory. And so there's this temptation though to, to get sucked back into this, uh, to this worldly pattern of saying, well, well, God doesn't care about sin now. 
because Christ has paid it all. And when I was five, I prayed a prayer on my mother's lap and I'm okay and I can live my life however I want. Uh, unfortunately, such is not the message of the Bible. Well, let me, let me take us to this text. I want to, uh, I want to reread verse 1 of chapter 4. Because this is uh, the beginning of the second kind of salvation section that we're in the middle of. And, and uh, Micah writes this and he says, it shall, come pat, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the peoples will flow to it. He's talking about the end of time, so to speak. He's talking about God's salvation that will come in the latter days. And I've said this on a number of occasions, but by way of reminder, the latter days began with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will conclude at his second coming. And so we live in the middle of, quote, the the latter days. We'll see this a little bit later on, and it comes up to us throughout all of the New Testament. But we live in the middle of the latter days, and, and so Micah is proclaiming that there is a point in the future when God will not only redeem his people to himself, but his kingdom will be like the greatest, highest mountain on all of the earth. And things will be tremendous and spectacular. But now drop down with me to verse 7 of chapter 4. And this is where we kind of left off two weeks ago. Micah says, And the lame, God is speaking here, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from that time forth, and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Israel. In other words, there's coming a time in the future when a figure is going to arrive who will be a king, and this kingdom is going to be established, and it is going to be extraordinary. And he's not only going to be a king, but he is going to serve as a shepherd. But in the meantime, verse 9, he writes, Now why do you cry aloud, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Now, now, let me just try to explain this. At the time that this was written, Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah was a godly guy. And he's drifting back into sort of judgment talk. And Micah says, you are a people who are crying out, is there no king in us? Can you imagine the slap in the face to Hezekiah? You know, the people are crying, we don't have a king, just after Micah saying there is a king who is coming. He asks, has your counselor perished? And he says that the kingdom that existed in 750 BC is going to writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. 
and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. He mixes in this idea of salvation and judgment. You see, the Assyrians who were coming down from the north, who had conquered Damascus, who had conquered uh, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, who had come down into the southern kingdom of Judah, and now were at the gates of Jerusalem, are stopped right at the gates of Jerusalem and don't actually conquer Jerusalem. But years later, the southern kingdom is taken into exile into Babylon. That's where we get Daniel and those things that take place. So judgment is still coming, even though Micah is promising at the same time that a king is coming who will reestablish a kingdom that will be the greatest kingdom on earth. And so there's this mixture of these things going on at the end of chapter 4, and then we come to chapter 5. We come to the end of chapter 5, or the beginning of chapter 5, and, and Micah begins and he writes and he says to the people of the southern kingdom in Judah, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel is the king. Again, this is a terribly scandalous statement. The Assyrians are coming, your enemies are coming, Babylon is in your future, and they're going to slap your king in the face in his own throne room. In the ancient world, there was no greater obscenity, really, than to to assault a king by an open hand slap across the face. God says, this is what is coming. But now he's going to begin to paint a picture of the king that he has been talking about who is going to reestablish this great kingdom. And it's going to come in very odd and unusual ways. As I said at the beginning of our talks in Micah, what Micah does is he, he takes the sketch of the future and he starts to add ink and paint to that painting. So we get a clearer and clearer picture of how it is going to unfold. And one of the reasons that in our, in our bulletin this morning we went to Isaiah chapter 53 was that Micah and Isaiah wrote at the same time to the same people about the same things. And Isaiah even gave us a clearer picture of the reality that this king was going to suffer and die in order to redeem his people. That's why we went through those texts in Isaiah this morning. But look with me at chapter 5, verse 2. Judgment is coming, verse 1. But you, O Bethlehem Apaphtha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In, in the book of Joshua, there, there's a list of all the important cities that were in the southern kingdom of Judah. Bethlehem is not mentioned. But now when we hear the word Bethlehem, what do we do? We automatically, I mean, everybody here did it. You started thinking about Christmas. Luke chapter 2, the beginning sections of Matthew. 
And, and you know, the people here would have thought of Bethlehem, but in a very different way. You see, we look back on Bethlehem as the birthplace of our Savior. They are looking forward to Bethlehem as the place of their king. And let me explain what I mean here. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In other words, what Micah is saying is, from Bethlehem is going to come the king who is not only going to reunite the southern kingdom of Israel, but is going to be the savior of his people. We look back on that, but you know what? So did the people in Micah's day. They looked back on these prophecies about Bethlehem. And I'll explain how that works. In fact, look at the end of verse 2. He says, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Long time ago, Bethlehem was talked about. And we say, I don't remember Bethlehem because all we think about is Christmas. But now think about your Old Testament. I would give you a gold star for the next six months. Um, if you could think of a story that took place in the Old Testament in Bethlehem, don't think too hard. I'll tell you what the story is. There's a whole book in the Bible written about it. And that book is called Ruth. Now Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile. But she came out of Moab after her, her husband died and came to a little town called Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, she met a man whose name was Boaz, who was a very godly Israelite. And, and, and Ruth was in terrible trouble, and she needed it to be, to be redeemed. And, and the story goes that Boaz redeemed her and, and married her, and she became his wife and became an Israelite. And, and she was spared, and she became part of the community of faith in Bethlehem. Now, it gets better, because Boaz and Ruth had kids. And one of their sons' name was Jesse. Now Jesse got married and had a passel of kids, and his youngest son was named David, who became the great king of Israel. And the whole thing started in Bethlehem. But promises were made to David way before Micah's day. Way before Micah's day. And this is one of the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read this. When your days, God's speaking to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here we have this extraordinary period in history where when the word Bethlehem is used, not only do we look back to the birth of the Lord Jesus, the people in Micah's day looked back to David's day going, I remember. David was from Bethlehem. His family was. And a promise was made to David that he would have a, a son from his line who would sit on the throne forever and ever. And Micah is talking about all of this coming to fruition in the future, 750 years, when Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem and be established as the king who will reign over his kingdom forever and ever, having taken care of the problem of the judgment for sin so that a remnant of lame people who cannot help themselves can be brought into that kingdom of God. That's one verse. One verse. But it continues. He's speaking of this king, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she shall be in labor and has given birth. And then rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And he shall dwell, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be the great, be great to the ends of the earth. Now listen to verse five. And he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Now in chapter two, what were the priests and the prophets and the preachers? of Micah's day preaching. Peace. Peace. It says so right there. Go back to chapter 2 and look at it. Their message was peace. Surely destruction will not come upon us. Here, Micah says, in reference to the promise made in David's day, that this coming king is not going to provide peace. He will be your peace. Peace with God, because the problem of sin can be dealt with and your relationship with God restored. That's only two verses in Micah. And he's still looking back, but he's talking about the future. He's talking unknowingly about 750 years in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ would die on the cross and raise again three days later and his father would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The problem of sin must be dealt with for there to be salvation. And the only way relationship with God exists is if the problem of sin is dealt with. Now we flip over to the end of the chapter because 
it ends sort of strangely. We're going over to verse 7 of chapter 5. And he continues to talk about the remnant. And I want to go back over this very quickly. This message, the message of Micah, was for the entire nation of Israel. And everybody in that nation went through the trials and tribulations of the kingdom of Assyria coming down and in their near future went through the trials and tribulations of being exiled to Babylon. Whether you had faith in what God had said or not, you went through hard times. Okay? But the remnant were the ones who ultimately were brought into the kingdom of God because they had faith and trust and confidence in what God had said in the past about the future. I hope that makes sense, okay? So, verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Now this is very strange. Let me tell you why. Micah is saying that for the remnant, the people who genuinely have faith in what God has said to them about the problem of sin, about the reality that he's going to take care of the problem of sin, and that in the future he is going to be a kingdom, a part of which the remnant can be involved. He's talking to this remnant and he says, you have two roles. You have two roles in the world. And you're going to be among the whole world. It says here multiple times, you're going to be among all the nations. What are those two roles? The first is you're going to be like the dew on the grass. You may be fleeting, but you're going to provide benefit to all those who are around you. Okay? But the second one is odd. Because you're going to be like a young lion among the flock. And you're going to tear people up. Now, why is that the case? Because the remnant, those who belong to God by faith, are those who are to tell people about the coming judgment and their need for repentance and their need for faith. And number one, it's not a popular message. But it should be a good message because it's the message that tells humanity the only way to have a relationship with God is if sin is dealt with. But that's a message that tears people up. And it's also a message that sees people end up in judgment if they don't repent. And so those are the two roles of the remnant here. But then the chapter ends very strangely, but I can clear it up, I hope, very quickly. Beginning in verse 9. And your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. But in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off your cities of your land and throw down your strongholds, and I will cut off your sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. 
and I will cut off all your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands, and I will root up all your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities, and in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Back to judgment. Seems out of line. What's going on? He's talking to the whole nation, the whole southern kingdom. He's speaking to the remnant as well. Now let's go back to the very beginning. You have Micah's sermon, judgment, sin has to be dealt with, and then salvation. You have the preaching of the other preachers and the prophets, which was you're fine with God, you're God's people, you haven't done anything worthy of being judged, eat, drink, and be merry, everything is just fine. Those are the two opposing messages. Now, if you don't believe that sin needs to be judged and dealt with, what do you do? You create your own system that tells you you're okay, right? I mean, you, you know, whether it's a religious system or an individual personal way of life and living and so on and so forth, you, you put your confidence and your trust in what you can see. And, and that b helps you to believe the message that you're okay, right? So the whole end of chapter 5 is God saying, at the end, I'm going to tear all that away. I'm going to tear away your horses, meaning your armies. I'm going to tear away your kingdoms. I'm going to tear away your temples. I'm going to tear away your idols. I'm going to tear away your money. I'm going to tear away everything that you rest on. All your man-made stuff that these guys have been preaching peace about is going to be gone. And the problem of sin has to be dealt with. How is it going to get dealt with? And he concludes, vengeance on the nations that did not obey. There it is. There it is. A lot of stuff in a few verses. Boatload of application. Micah has done an excellent job of stripping the whole thing bare. I think, by saying you either believe God that sin is going to be judged and that God has provided a way for man to have relationship with him by his provision for judgment, or you face judgment on your own. Really no middle ground. The remnant who believe point A are still going to go through hard times. They will be swept along in the judgment that God may bring upon a people who are not faithful. That's reality. But ultimately, they will find themselves on the mountain that is higher than anything, in the presence of their king who has paid the price and satisfied God's judgment. Or that judgment will rest on that individual. Maybe with a little bit of what I've said today, just reread Micah chapter 5. 
the message of judgment for sin and God's provision for it is good news. We can't take care of the problem unless we want to spend an eternity in hell. But he did. Sin does not go unjudged. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Um, I don't know that I was as clear as I wanted to be, but I stand in awe of the reality that before Micah's day, Bethlehem was prophesied as being the place where the king would come who would take care of the problem of sin. And as Isaiah said, he was scarred and, and mutilated and shamed in his judgment for our sin. All praise belongs to him. In Christ's name, amen.